It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au, bz.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. Our guest today is Professor Federico Rosé and he has held the Canada Research Chair at Nanostructured Organic and Inorganic Materials since 2003. His research interests focus on properties of nanostructured materials and how to control their size, shape, composition, stability and positioning when grown on suitable substrates. He has extensive experience in fabricating, processing, characterizing inorganic, organic, and biocompatible nanomaterials. I look forward to hearing all about those. Uh, welcome, Federico. Thank you. Good to be with you. Great for you to join us. And uh, you, you do speak a lot around the world, around the, just the energy problem more generally. And uh, it would be great today just to, to take a bit of a different approach to what we usually do on this show when we, when we uh, most of the guests we have on this show discuss sort of uh, market-ready, clean-tech innovations, but then we maybe also talk about things like regulation and business models and those kinds of things. But it's always good to just have a look at what is, both in terms of, you know, what are we doing this all for? Why is this energy transition so important? And also, uh, what are the kinds of things that may be you know, on the horizon that uh, that aren't necessarily going to be, you know, marketable products anytime, you know, soon, maybe in the next decade, but can really uh, hold the, the key to uh, getting us completely off uh, our fossil fuel dependence in coming decades. So it's a great opportunity to discuss that today. The way we usually like to, to start these interviews is to know a bit about our guests. So uh, you are based in, uh, in Quebec. Um, tell us a bit about your history. Well, I'm originally from Italy. I uh, grew up uh, in various places in Italy, uh, studied mostly in Rome, and then started looking for a job after earning my PhD there. And uh, Italy is a great place for many things, but science, technology, and research are not among those things. So at some point, I packed my bags and left. I um, Started off in Denmark, a brief uh, stint for about a year and a half, and then I moved to Montreal. Uh, that was 2002, so I've been here the better part of 14-something uh, years. And um, yeah, so that I guess that sums it up. I, uh, uh, I'm an academic, so I do basic type of research with a view to certain applications. Energy, of course, is one of them. Uh, as you can appreciate, though, as an academic, my uh, main, uh, my, my core mission is to train people. And so uh, we do a lot of research, but uh, the ultimate objective is to train uh, the next generation of scientists uh, so that they can join the workforce and hopefully do something useful with their training. 
Yeah, I, I, I missed out. A, I, I did have a longer introduction for you, and I, I sort of skipped over it, partly because I was keen to get into the interview and partly because there was a lot of French there that I wasn't confident in pronouncing. But you, you seem to hold a lot of positions, and, and you, you just mentioned uh, before we went to air that you had re- recently been in, in Germany and China. Um, I'm interested in the life of an academic, particularly someone like you who's quite experienced how much time do you spend in the lab? I mean, you spoke about the 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 train, uh, the teaching you do, and the uh, and the travelling you do, perhaps communicating your ideas and, and attending conferences and whatnot. But how much time do you actually get to spend doing basic research, or do you do more supervision and and uh, peer review? Well, today we live in um in a research world. Uh, uh, which is called, uh, which is referred to as the corporate model, and that means that past a certain point, um, people like me don't spend any time at all in the lab. What we do is we supervise the work of of students and young researchers. They're the ones who actually do work the work in the lab. Um, our job is more about coordin- coordinating their efforts, um, identifying promising directions. Uh, of discovery and discussing their data, analyzing it, and then helping them write up papers and so on. So at the end of the day, in this corporate model, uh, most of what I do is supervision, then there's training, and then there's this uh, sort of uh, PR aspect uh, in which I travel a lot to uh, disseminate the results of our work. And uh, and then, of course, I spend... um, an enormous amount of time writing uh, proposals to fund our activities because ultimately, uh, you know, when you run out of money, there's uh, there's nothing left to do. So that's uh, that's probably one of my primary, or if not my primary, uh, task these days is to um, uh, is to fund our group's activities. That's very interesting, and I guess it, it, it's an issue with with a lot of uh, it's the corporate model. But yeah, the corporate world is you, you do get a, a to a point in a lot of jobs where you are more likely to be supervising, uh, coordinating, uh, funding, or you know helping fund certain things rather than do the, the the basic job. And I guess it's the one of the hardest things to achieve as you get older, perhaps to be able to do that the basic things that you got into that 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 uh, discipline in the first in the first place. Um, but it must be also very, very gratifying to to be able to be involved with you have your fingers in so many pies and, and see so much about what's going on across across an industry or across a, a discipline as you have. Um, you, you work in the area of nanotechnology. I mean, maybe we can, should go back to first principles for our listeners. We do have a very you know educated audience, but perhaps we could we could just get get on the same page and, and really come to an understanding of of how you describe nanotechnology and what it is. Well, um, nanotechnology refers to um, all sorts of devices and systems that exploit uh, very small phases of matter. This means um, nanocrystals or nanomaterials. Uh, Nano, um, this uh, prefix comes from Greek. Uh, the Greek word for dwarf, and uh, if you take uh, one nanometer, it's basically one billionth of a meter. 
or in other words, maybe it's easier to visualize as one millionth of a millimeter. Uh, so within a space of a nanometer, there's usually about three atoms. And so we use uh, such nanocrystals that usually are a few nanometers or up to 10 nanometers in each direction. Uh, and that's because they exhibit very interesting properties. Uh, the Whichever element or material you take, when you shrink it to such small dimensions, it behaves in a completely different way uh, to what we're used to uh, when we look at this material in its bulk form. And so exploiting these properties is leading to all sorts of uh, opportunities and new technologies. Can you give us an, uh, an example of, of something that, that behaves very differently the nanoscale compared to what it would um, in, in, in normal circumstances? Yes, absolutely. My favorite example is gold. Um, in our everyday experience, gold uh, uh, is uh, a noble metal, which means that it does not react uh, chemically uh, with almost anything. There's only one uh, chemical can that can actually attack gold. Uh, then we see it as, as yellow in bulk form, and it's also a conductor. It's a metallic conductor. A nanocrystal of gold, on the other hand, is chemically reactive. It's a semiconductor, so its conductivity changes drastically. And a powder of gold nanocrystals appears to be red instead of yellow. Wow, that's, that's, that's something to behold. So you, you've spoken a bit, and a bit of what I've read about uh, your, your work is that you, you've spoken a bit about uh, the difficulties that and and the 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 vanguard of, of nanotechnology and, and what you need to achieve. Where, if you were to compare it to another discipline, I guess I uh, I could compare it to one I work in in information technology, which of course is very advanced and is 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 doing a lot in in the everyday lives of of, of people. If you were to put nanotechnology on that scale, where where do you think it is in in terms of of its development as a science? Well, um. It's far ahead uh, in terms of scientific advances, and it's uh, far behind in terms of commercial technologies. And that's because in the last maybe 30 years, we've come to learn a lot about how uh, materials and systems behave at such small scales. But as you can appreciate, uh, controlling uh, this behavior and... Uh, scaling it up into something that becomes an affordable technology, that's another story. It's a, it's a huge challenge. So there are some, uh, some cases where nanotechnology can be more easily commercialized than, than, uh, than others. But in general, this, this challenge of uh, you know, keeping it low cost while harnessing these exceptional properties, that's, uh, that's a tall order. So until now, we've developed a really strong and, and deep understanding, but um, we're not there yet in terms of, of deploying the full potential of, of this suite of technologies. 
Understood, understood. Well, you, you travel the world and you speak a lot about about the energy problem, and uh, it's obviously the, the the main crux of this show. We talk about where we're going with with new energy technologies every day. But l- let's take that step back and talk about um, where we are and the, and the energy squeeze, if you like. Um, could we start by just talking about how important energy has been? Um, to human development, uh, you, you you talk a lot about corresponding energy usage with with the development of humanity. It, can, can you give us any sort of insight into you know what humans have been able to achieve the more energy they've been able to get access to? Uh, yes, absolutely. So uh, I suppose you're familiar with the Industrial Revolution uh, that was in the 18th century. Now. Uh, If you think about it, the Industrial Revolution was prompted by a new type of energy that had not been uh, used on a large scale until then. Basically, that was the first time that humans tapped into fossil fuels. They learned how to burn coal in a steam engine, and that's what led to the Industrial Revolution. And after that, uh, we learned to use, uh, uh, say, natural gas and oil, and and these are the other uh, components of fossil fuels. And basically, this led to all the technologies that today we take for granted, uh, whether it's cars or airplanes Uh, Ships are powered by fossil fuels. In most cases, households are heated or cooled down using uh, fossil fuel-derived energy. Uh, I was just in China, as as you recalled, and uh, in a lot of Chinese cities, pollution is terrible during the winter because they uh, burn coal to produce electricity and heat up their homes, and that leads to an inordinate amount of pollution. So basically, these are examples of how access to energy has drastically changed uh, society in some sense for better, because now we have all these technologies at our disposal, but there's always a price to pay when you, uh, when you use technologies that uh, obviously pollute the environment, uh, like fossil fuels do, and uh, and also um, that that are based on resources that are finite, that are scarce, uh, again, fossil fuels. Um, but going back in time, I guess, you know, the discovery of, uh, of fire just by burning wood, uh, I guess in, in uh, prehistoric times, the two great uh, uh, inventions or discoveries, if you like, maybe fire is a discovery and the wheel is an invention, but those are the two big ones that uh, changed uh, human development pretty drastically. Uh, I don't know how many thousands of years ago. We're on the Beyond Zero show, and we're speaking to Federico Rosé, who is a uh, nanotechnology researcher based in Quebec, uh, but originally from Italy, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, yeah, we, we there is that that dual thing, isn't it? It is a finite resource, uh, but. Forgetting that, obviously, the, the local and global environmental impacts of, of fossil fuel use are, are, of course, 
very well known to our audience, and I won't dwell that on that too much besides just to, to quote uh, Bill McKibben of 350.org and his, his famous three numbers, which is to say that two degrees Celsius for pre-industrial levels, above pre-industrial levels is considered to be, well, thought to be safe uh, to keep the, the world from getting into catastrophic climate change. That would mean that only 565 gigatons of, of greenhouse gases can be emitted into the atmosphere in order for us to to prevent that two-degree rise. And yet 2,795, in the, the last number that I know of, of gigatons of, of greenhouse gases would be released if all of the known reserves of fossil fuels were to be uh, emitted. So that's basically saying that uh, 80% of the fossil fuels that are just discovered um, need to be kept in the ground if we want to prevent uh, catastrophic climate change. Uh, but, I mean, but let's talk a bit about fossil fuels. You said how you know, the Industrial Revolution was so uh, significant. What has made fossil fuels so attractive and allowed our economies to grow so well? And, and even today just has an, just an incredible dependence that, that we've developed. What is, what is so great about them? Well, so great about them. That's an interesting way to put it. Um, so first of all, fossil fuels have an amazing energy density, which means that in a fairly small volume, there's a lot of energy that can be converted into some other useful form of energy. And, and so that's one major aspect. For example, liquid fuels... Uh, right now, with our current technological know-how, liquid fuels are the only type of fuel that can fly a plane, like a, a, a big plane, uh, long distance, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it was proven that a, a small aircraft can be powered by solar energy for short distances, but uh, without liquid fuels, which are all fossil fuel derived today anyway, uh, there's no way that we can continue our major large-scale intercontinental travel that we've become used to over the last few decades, which means, you know, you guys down under, uh, without those liquid fuels, uh, you'd have to go back uh, to, to, you know, boats uh, and whatnot. So that's that's one aspect. It's the energy density. And then well, in the old days, when we started exploiting fossil fuels, it was also that they were fairly low cost, or in, let me rephrase it in another way. Um, there's always economic uh, issues that come into play, of course. When you consider any type of energy technology, you need to look at the energy return on energy investment, right? I mean, you want a significant return on your investment. And if you look historically at oil fields, maybe 40, 50 years ago, um, when people were drilling an oil field, you know, obviously to drill a field, you, you need energy, right? And how much energy do you need to drill a field? Well, it depends on the size. But let's say that uh, if you invested one, the equivalent of one barrel of oil to drill your field, your return would be 200 barrels. And that made the return on investment just so disproportionate. There was no other energy technology that could even remotely uh, yield such a high return on investment. And so obviously that and the energy density together 
they just drove our economy towards dependence uh, on fossil fuels. It was almost inevitable. Yeah, that's that. That is incredible, and uh, yeah, that, that, like you said, that, that they still do a lot of things that just can't be done uh, across across the place. But the the issue around keeping fossil fuels in the ground to, to prevent catastrophic climate change, um, and, and the fact that, of course, usage uh, demand for for energy in general keeps going up, uh, does does present quite a challenge. But how do you respond to this idea that's put forward by economists? I, I think it's an incredible idea because it really pits, uh, I guess, physical scientists against against economists and the different worldview, where they say that technically, as far as they're concerned, the world will never run out of fossil fuels because all you need to do is to put incentives in place for enough people to go and explore to find new sources. So as far as an economist is concerned, the world isn't physical because if you put enough incentives in place, the fossil fuels will be found. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, You don't don't share that view, I'm guessing. (laughs) Well, I mean, economists uh, in principle, you know, economics is... uh, is this discipline which is supposed to uh, help in deciding how to allocate resources and uh, and in particular how to uh, best uh, optimize the allocation of resources that are scarce. And, you know, fossil fuels are obviously a, a scarce or finite resource. And uh, as soon as you say that, it means that it's at some point it won't be around anymore. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Uh, it, it took it took the sun hundreds of millions of years to decompose vegetation into uh, petroleum, natural gas, and and coal, and we are burning all of that over a period of a few hundred years. So, I mean, I guess in a sense, it could be said that over a very long period of time. Uh, the sun will decompose more vegetation and there will be more fossil fuels available. Uh, that's not a time scale that is relevant to uh, to human society over the next few centuries. And uh, for me, it's obvious. I mean, as long as we keep uh, digging and burning such fossil fuels, at some point uh, they will be completely depleted. And and we are and we are seeing uh, the the effects of that in terms of um, developers going after much more marginal sources. I mean, I mentioned that the the, the known sources, but you know, Shell has abandoned um, uh, I think drilling in, in in the Arctic, I believe, um, after a long period. There's and there's just you know there's obviously a lot of uh, local uh, environmental risks around um, spills in deep water kind of drilling that's happened in the Gulf of Mexico. So. So the assumptions the economists are making that they'll always be found assumes that, firstly, that you can then safely get that fossil fuel, um, but then also that the price you get is going to be uh, – the, the customer is being, is, will be prepared to pay for it, which I guess with a lot of renewable alternatives may become less and less the case. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, you, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said pay for in the sense that so what I said earlier, you know, uh, the return on investment was in disproportionate and whatnot. But what people didn't factor in uh, until now, and finally we're beginning to do it, is the the environmental costs and the health costs. Because once you factor those, 
you know, renewables obviously are a win because, you know, go put a price on your health. Consider how uh, the typical lifetime of humans uh, is less in China, say, than in other countries because of so much pollution. And uh, consider, you know, even just the cost to society. But let's not even talk about um, monetary costs. I mean, obviously, health problems lead to all sorts of other um, costs. And so once you factor those uh, into the equation, obviously, renewables are the winner. But the, the problem is that we're much more used to looking at uh, short-term returns. And so if they tell us, well, you know, solar energy, uh, yeah, it's uh, much more beneficial to health and environment, but uh, it's going to pay off over a long period of time. Uh, a lot of people don't feel comfortable sort of investing in it, unfortunately. And yet, you know, you referred to earlier, uh, earlier you referred to climate change and well, climate change is already a reality. Over the last maybe five to ten years, we've experienced on a planetary scale uh, an increasing frequency of extreme events. And these happen basically every month, every year, in almost every part of the planet. So this is a reality that we have to contend with. And it's a reality that has huge uh, economic costs as well as, again, uh, environmental costs and, and not to mention all the lives that are lost because of these uh, extreme events. Indeed, indeed. And we, we've only got a few minutes left, unfortunately, on the Beyond Zero show, but I'd love to spend the rest of the time we have together to speak about uh, and go full circle and talk about some of the nanotechnology potential around uh, solving some of these these bigger issues. Can you Can you maybe go into a bit of detail on third generation solar cells and perhaps talk about how they differ from uh, what we what is in you know production right now currently solar so the, the the most widespread used uh, material for commercial solar cells is silicon and this is a fairly robust technology the efficiency of power conversion is fairly good and uh, the panels last uh, uh, typically a couple of decades, so it's uh, it's a fairly solid technology. One of the main issues until now has been the the cost, uh, which is uh, higher than a lot of people can or want to afford, and so this has prompted um, the investigation of these uh, uh, future generation solar cells. I guess right now we're in uh, third generation solar cells. Um, and those are usually made of nanomaterials. And the idea is that uh, when you use nanomaterials, you can better harness uh, the power of the sun. In principle, you're able to obtain higher power conversion efficiencies. And then depending on the material and the type of um, process you use to uh, to make these materials and transform them into devices, then you might uh, be lucky enough to develop a, a low-cost uh, technology. So ultimately, the two, well, the three big factors that come into play for solar technologies are, 
first of all, uh, the cost, uh, say dollars per watt, uh, if you want. And other than that, you look at the long-term stability. You don't want to change your panels after two years. Once you've installed them, you would like them to stick around for a good 20 years. And then, of course, uh, all other things being equal, you would rather have a higher efficiency than, uh, than lower. And so uh, the idea of these third-generation solar cells is to harness the, the power of these nanoscale systems that uh, can, can better absorb uh, solar energies and more efficiently convert it into other more useful forms of electricity. We're used to solar panels that typically transform um, light from the sun into electricity, but um, a very important part of uh, solar energy research today uh, is called solar hydrogen, and it's essentially uh, using solar energy to split water molecules into oxygen and hydrogen so that hydrogen can be stored as a chemical fuel and, uh, and used later on in, uh, in a fuel cell device. And, and that's very important because all renewable energy technologies are intermittent. They do not provide a continuous source of energy. If you take solar, you have power during the day and nothing at night. And even during the day, as soon as a cloud passes overhead, your power drops to 10 or 20%. Wind cycles are of the order of half an hour to one hour and so on and so forth. So they're all intermittent, which means that the, the great challenge for all renewable technologies is energy storage. You want to be able to store the excess energy for a time when your source does not provide any. And that's why it's important to use solar energy uh, for hydrogen generation. Um, the, the great potential of solar is essentially untapped. At this time, if you look at the energy pie, 75% is still fossil fuels, and solar is only 1%. And yet, every hour of every day, the sun sends towards our planet enough energy to power the whole world for one year. So every hour, we receive enough that we could power the whole world for one year, and yet it's only 1%. So the potential for development is uh, incalculable, essentially. I mean, there's so much more and so much better we can do. Fantastic. Well, that would be a great place to leave it and uh, a very inspiring message. So thanks for joining us today, uh, Professor. My pleasure. And is there any, if people want to find out more about what you're up to, is there anywhere they can go on the internet to find out? A great effort on uh, my part is to share uh, knowledge and expertise in energy technologies between North and South. Now, in with North and South, I use the UNESCO definition, where North means developed or rich and South means developing. So in this uh, geographical paradox, Australia would count as North and uh, China would count as South. Um, and uh, so basically, the website of our UNESCO chair, that's where you can find a lot of, of our efforts uh, the UNESCO chair is called uh, Materials and Technologies for Energy Conversion, Saving, and Storage. So the website is matecss.org. So matex.org. 
and we'll put that on the the website as well. So, yeah, so thank you very much for that, and um, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero show brought to you by the Climate Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions. To find out more about what we do or get involved, visit us at bze.org.au. My name's Anthony Daniel. We'll see you next time.